Um, Understanding the Times, it has a lovely uh, long subtitle, like uh, books used to back in the olden days. Uh, a pre-modern reflection on the modernist foundations of postmodernism. So you at least get the idea <laughs> that we're looking at uh, the shift, uh, the development of, although these different worldviews continue alongside each other in the present day, of course, uh, from a pre-modernism, particularly a, a Christian pre-modern worldview, the idea of modernism uh, as a worldview, and post-modernism. And what are these things? And I want to put those into the context of spirituality. Remember the last time I was with you, we were talking about uh, this context of, of spirituality and my uh, sort of definition of spirituality is basically the combination of your head, heart and hands. Uh, so I'm going to put um, these worldview shifts and the sort of philosophical shifts in those worldviews in the context of spirituality and then how that works out in cultural terms. And we'll be looking at various sort of artistic cultural expressions of these different spiritualities. Um, and I'm trying to sort of combine a sort of philosophical, apologetic kind of look at these things with giving us a handle on what does it feel like to live inside these different spiritualities uh, and how uh, we can understand um, culture and where different cultures and different people are coming from according to their spiritualities. I think that hopefully means that my... Uh, it is uh, charging up just to give us a bit of extra loudness on some of the clips and things. Anyway, you will notice this painting. This is a bit of Christian art from a Japanese Christian artist uh, called Makoto Fujimura. You can look him up on the web and find uh, lots of lovely uh, pictures by him. He uses um, traditional Japanese uh, Asian painting techniques of, of painting with, you can see here this is lots of gold leaf and things, he paints with lots of sort of minerals and very precious uh, gems and things. This is a piece called Grace Foretold and we'll look at that later and think a little bit about the way in which art doesn't have to be um, sort of programmatic or sort of uh, stereotypically, obviously this is a picture that's like, you know, the virgin and child. You think, yeah, okay, that's a bit of Christian art. Right? Well, no, things are more subtle and complex than that. Yeah. This is not a, a picture of a obvious thing. Um, but once you, you have this imagery and this uh, title, uh, you can uh, begin to get a handle on what is being expressed artistically about a particular worldview and culture. Um, so we'll, we'll stop occasionally and I'll sort of play you a song and we'll look at the lyrics or look at a film clip or look at a bit of art and so on and have sort of group discussion and feedback about those things as we, as we go on. So, <coughs> um, we've got the idea of different worldviews, sort of your mental home, I'm going to stand up for this. Um, 
or being a bit like a mirror, a worldview reflects your image of reality back to you. Uh, you tend to see things in, in terms that you expect to, th to see them in. Um, whether or not our worldview actually is reflecting reality to us depends upon whether or not that worldview is true, where I'm going to insist as a pre-modernist that being true is a matter of telling it like it is, like it really is, uh, of being true to the facts of the matter. That there are the facts of the matter that are, that are there independently of what I think or believe about it, and then I have beliefs about how that independent reality is, and if there's a match or a correspondence between my beliefs about how things are and how things actually are, independent of my beliefs about them, then my belief is true. This is a um, traditional philosophical understanding of truth, although some postmodernists claim to deny it, although people always do so inconsistently, um, because they will always, of course, claim that their denial of this definition of truth is true. And then you need to ask them, well, what do you mean by that? <laughs> do you mean <laughs> that it's true? Uh, in which case you're making some scientific claim that's contradicting itself. Or do you not mean that it's true? In which case, why, why am I even bothering to listen to their claim? <laughs> so, a uh, reminder about spirituality uh, aims to be a virtuous, integrative way of life that combines your, your assumptions and beliefs about reality, your worldview, and the attitudes of your heart, and the combination of your assumptions and your attitudes leads you to your actions uh, in the world. Or we will head heart and hands to alliterate in a, in a different way. Actually start bringing, sorry. <laughs> And these become a self-reinforcing loop. Um, sometimes people say, well, typical, typical philosopher putting the head at the foundation of this thing here. Um, why, why put the, the, the thought level uh, sort of saying that's more important than the others, that's where we should start. Well, that's why I think we should start as a philosopher. But yeah, this is a, it's a loop. It's like a, a snowball rolling downhill. It's the combination of faith and works reinforcing one another. And this isn't just off the top of my head. This, I think, is um, something you get all the way through um, the Bible, based on a sort of biblical understanding of human nature. This is just, I think, the way that we're created to function as spiritual beings. So Jesus, in answering the question about the greatest commandment in so Mark 12.30, and referencing back to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6.5, says that true virtuous spirituality begins with loving God, with basically with everything you are, but he, he mentions with all of your heart, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength, right, what you do. Um, so your attitudes, your thinking, your doing. Uh, back to Deuteronomy, this is Deuteronomy 31.12, so assemble the people 
and the foreigners residing in your towns and so on, so they can listen and learn thinking, ideas, to fear, reverence, attitude, the Lord, and follow carefully all the words of this law. So you've got to have the ideas, you've got to have the right attitude towards the ideas, and that will lead you to implementing the ideas, you see. Now, here is perhaps a step on from what I talked about spirituality last time. The idea of uh, spiritual development. I, I got into this subject by thinking about the um, governmental requirements for spiritual development in school curriculum. Uh, which is a complete mess because nobody has a consistent definition of what spirituality is, let alone what spiritual development is. So nobody knew how to, how to do it, implement it, or, or measure it. <laughs> which is rather difficult to do as a school if you're being uh, told that it's mandatory for you to do something that you don't know what it is and you don't know how to measure it. Um, hence, I'm trying to work on a consistent definition. Well, given that definition, Spirituality it aims to be, may or may not succeed, but it aims to be a virtuous and integrative way of life. That this combination of your assumptions, attitudes and actions should bring uh, through internalisation of these things, if you're not just going along with the crowd, if you're actually internalising it, owning it for yourself, that should lead to a virtuous integration of personality. It should bring greater personal wholeness and integrity uh, to you. Um, that's what spirituality is, is aiming to produce uh, in a person. Whereas uh, if you get it wrong, you will lead to spiritual um, devolution or disintegration. Uh, that you might adopt a spirituality that actually, the more you try and work out and uh, own these assumptions and attitudes and actions in your life, the more you will be pulled apart as a person, the more disintegrative it will be. And I say this happens at a cultural level as well as a personal level. So at a personal level, for example, Augustine, uh, said this in his confessions, my sin was this, that I looked for pleasure, beauty and truth, goodness, beauty and truth, not in him, not in God, but in myself and his other creatures, and the search led me instead to pain, confusion and error. <laughs> so you see, from Augustine we get the idea that if we put God first, and we pursue him and the way of life that he mandates for us, that would bring us truth and goodness and beauty, personal integration and wholeness. But if we don't put God first and we try and pursue other things first, then actually that leads to personal disintegration and pain and confusion and error. Um, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Seek all those other things first, and you lose everything. Or C.S. Lewis famously talking about the principle of first things first. You put the first things first, you get the second things thrown in. Seek the second things first, and you lose everything. Same principle. 
So on a cultural level, then applying that to the spirituality of culture, culture is a shared spirituality together with characteristic artistic traditions. And yes, of course, those artistic traditions are influenced by cultural conditions such as uh, the available materials and technology. Um, so, uh, you know, if, uh, if you are living geographically somewhere that tends to flood a lot, your architecture probably ends up being built on stilts. <laughs> or you end up living on boats, or you know, you have to live in your environment. Um, but it's also influenced by your spirituality. Uh, like spiritualities, cultures can be more or less integrative or disintegrative. And I think uh, I would want to argue that a truly Christian culture will be integrative and bring wholeness, whereas. A, a culture that is not truly Christian will ultimately be disintegrative uh, the more that it departs from a truly Christian culture. Can you can you just clarify what you mean? Uh, what the link between spirituality and culture? Are you saying culture, culture sh shapes spirituality? Or are you saying that culture is a type of spirituality? I just yeah, I'm saying um, that people have spiritualities. Yeah. Um, when when pe people together share a spirituality that produces in its context a culture uh, a culture is the spirituality plus the artistic tradition of that group okay. in its context but you're right to point out that like our circle diagram once you then ha once you have a culture that culture will then influence the spirituality of the people in it. So again, it becomes a feedback loop. So both and, yeah, very good point. Now, if there's an argument running through what I say today, sort of apologetically, as it were, I'm sort of taking a sort of Francis Schaeffer-like sort of approach to uh, culture. Uh, so if you read uh, much of Francis Schaeffer, you'll, you'll resonate with this that I think the, the modernist rejection of God is the kind of key disintegrative spiritual and cultural move. And the, the more consistent one tries to be with the rejection of God from your spirituality, the deeper one will sink into postmodernism. That actually there's, there's a link between modernism and postmodernism, and that link is uh, the rejection of God and how consistently one is trying to live out that rejection. Could you could you just yeah. sorry I'm a little bit confused what you mean by integrative as well? Uh, so uh, in integrity and integrative they're all coming from the same root, um, sort of the idea of, of pulling you together. Into, into wholeness, uh, into a consistency uh, between your, your uh, uh, assumptions, your beliefs, your attitudes, and your actions. But there's a, a coherence and a consistency between these different levels of your spirituality 
Yeah. Um, so you're becoming, as, as the more that you internalise that spirituality, that way of life, the more sort of consistent a person you're being, the more integrity you have, um, the more uh, there is a, a, a peace and a cooperation uh, between your head and your heart and your hands, as opposed to having a way of life uh, where those different spheres of reality in your life are, are, are pulling you apart, pulling you in different directions. Uh, so you're becoming less integrated, less whole, more pulled in different directions. Yeah. Sorry, could you give an example? <coughs> yeah, so... Um, let's think. <laughs> Pick an example out of the, out of the air. Um, so, positively, because, because I believe in God, how do I react to God depends upon my attitude towards God, positive or negative. So I remember, you know, the Bible saying, you know, do you believe God is one? Well, even the even the demons assume that, assume that and tremble because they hate him. Um, but because I uh, react positively to the idea of there being a God, that leads me to doing uh, things that are consistent with God's reality. Um, so I, I, I bother praying, being part of a church community, etc, etc. Um, uh, I, I sort of orientate my life towards the purpose of trying to fulfil what I see as God's purposes for my existence, and so on. So I think there is, uh, the more that I do that, the more consistency there is between my, my view of how reality is and how I'm fitting into it. Um, and the more my character is shaped by those beliefs and assumptions, uh, the less I will sin. And uh, sin ultimately is painful to us as well as to God. Um, the temptation of sin is to think that actually it, it will be fun and, and enjoyable, as Augustine says for us. Um, but then you do it and then you find that it's not. Um, so, um, I mean, you could work this out in all sorts of, of spheres of life, um, say sort of sexual ethics. Um, if you think God has designed human beings uh, to relate to one another in, in certain ways, um, and yet um, you decide not to follow those ways of relating, um, do you then find that actually that leads, as Augustine says, to pain and confusion and, and error and so on, rather than giving you the, the promised uh, freedom and empowerment and so on that you thought it was going to give you. Um, you know, and that depends partly upon, well, have we been designed to function in a certain way? If we have, 
trying to work outside of those design parameters is pretty obviously going to lead to, to problems. Um, but even if, surely, if you are, don't believe in God, and so by that definition, disintegrative, mm. then sure, sure, I, I don't know, I just, I think that people who don't believe in God can also have a, a worldview or a view of things. They understand things by their belief in non-God and it, it yeah. is interpretive, because it? Yeah, but the thing is, um, the more consistently you're living with a belief that there is no God, um, if it is true that there is a God, the more consistently you live with a belief that there isn't a God, the further away from reality you're living. Um, and so the more likely it is that you're going to be living in ways that are cutting against the grain of reality as it were. Um, when you say reality, do you mean what is or what God intended? Um, yes. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so, for example, God, God intends um, that we should choose good over evil. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, yeah, part of that is tied up with um, the kind of beings he's, he's created us and intends us to, to be, uh, ultimately, or to, and to aim at being now. Mm. Um, and it's pretty hard to aim at, even aim at being that kind of being, if you don't even think there's a design plan. If you think, well, I, you know, I have no creator, there is no purpose to life, um, so I can just make it up myself. Um, and do whatever I like. Uh, if, if you then uh, try and live consistently with that, I think it's probably going to lead to more problems than... than so so your, definition, your definitions in reference to reality or your, difference, or your definitions in, re in reference to internal consistency? Because it yeah. mean, could be that postmodernism actually isn't internally consistent, and most people live as if it's truth, but they, there isn't truth. And so I, would, I can understand yeah. that yeah. being disintegrative mm -hmm. in that sense. But if, you're, if you sound like you're saying something slightly different, and actually it's in reference to the fact that they're not living as they were designed to live. Which yes, well, I think I think uh, both I think both is true. Yeah, you see. But which but which are you which are you running just in terms of your definitions here? Which are you which do you mm. mean when you when you say disintegrate? I think I agree that both are true, but I don't yeah. think that which one you're using as your definition. Um. So the, 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 I think the point that you're getting at here is that you could have, you could start with a false worldview assumption yeah. and someone could, person A could be trying to live very consistently with that false worldview assumption and person B could be living very inconsistently with that false worldview yeah. assumption. Yeah. Um, but it will depend in the way, so um, for example, someone might say, I don't believe there is any such thing as truth. So they're wrong, but they, they believe, they, they, I don't believe there's any such thing as truth. 
I would say the more consistently they live with that profession that there's no truth, uh, the less integrative, the more disintegrative their worldview is going to be. Uh, but person B might say, I don't believe there's any such thing as truth. Uh, but when they make a promise to their friends, uh, they act and they feel that it's important to keep it. Yeah. <laughs> so um, they are being less consistent with their worldview profession, but actually their, their, their heart and their hands, as it were, are being more consistent with the way reality actually is. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so you'll probably be with the left, you're more talking about kind of a disintegration from reality, but rather yeah. than, like a distancing from reality, rather than an internal inconsistency. Right, but what I, yes, so what I'm um, going to argue is um, the more you try and li live with a profession that there is no God, um, the more internally consistent you try to live with that profession, the further you are pushed towards a, a postmodern view. So the postmodernists are, in a sense, more internally consistent than the modernists, but that internal consistency is driving them further away from reality than the modernist is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sure. So, uh, I, I think it'll make more sense if we get through yeah, 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 three yeah. examples. Uh, so Nicholas Walterstorff just sets it up nicely with this quote here about the dispute raging today between those who see the, the Enlightenment project with capital V governing our system by, by sort of reason in a modernist sense and this is an unfulfilled project promising liberation on which we should all continue to, to work um, and those who see that uh, project as offering little but the tyranny of reason um, the first party says that if we don't continue to govern our lives by reason with this capital R, we can only expect more of the terrors of irrationalism. Uh, the second party says if we do continue to govern our lives by reason, uh, we can only expect more of the terrors of rationalism. Uh, think of the way that the French Revolution went in the Enlightenment period. Um, indeed, they, they installed... Uh, a lady dressed up as the goddess Reason in uh, Notre Dame Cathedral. So we're going to get rid of religion and all that. We're going to have to follow Reason and we're going to chop off the heads of anyone who disagrees with us and kill all the Catholic priests and <laughs> um, look where that sort of went. Uh, that in brief is the dispute between the defenders of modernism and the defenders of postmodernism and it's intense and it's confused. So let's start, I know, hey, we're all kind of inhabitants of this Christian pre-modern worldview here, but I think we get the contrast more nicely if we do spend some time focusing uh, upon some examples and thinking through um, some basic elements of the Christian worldview here. Let's take this image of looking into the mirror and sort of asking the question from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, you know, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest of them all? It's a kind of key worldview question. Uh, well, the pre-modernist worldview mirror, mirror on the wall would say something like this. Um, God is the fairest of them all. 
and God is the maximally beautiful being who created the cosmos. And I use that word advisedly. Um, it comes from the Greek meaning ordered beauty. Um, Cosmopolitan magazine. It comes from the same root, ordered beauty. Cosmos. And who made humanity in his image, only a little lower than the angels. That will be a picture from the Book of Kells, uh, illustrated gospel. With such a culture assumed and pointed to the existence of objective, transcendent, transcendental values of truth and goodness and beauty. Um, that are out there. This is a Leonardo da Vinci's painting of St. John the Baptist. Um, what was this painting saying? You wouldn't even know it was St. John the Baptist if I hadn't given you the title. Um, this is not really, in, in that sense, a sort of programmatic piece of art. What you see is a fairly androgynous human figure um, pointing upwards and you see that there's an so uh, unseen source of light illuminating the figure from above. What is Leonardo saying in that painting? He's not just saying, oh, this is what St. John the Baptist might have looked like. Here's a selfie, you know. Um, <laughs> what, what do you think? What is he actually communicating to you? Well, it's about him, but it's not about him, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's a painting about what the painting's not about. Which is right. Mm. So it's a painting about what the painting is not directly about. So what is it about? What is it saying? John the Baptist pointing you towards God as the authority of his life, perhaps, or from where he gets his light, and then light has yeah. the connotations. Yeah, so the connotations of, of light, <coughs> illumination, revelation, I've seen the light, uh, the light of the world, who came into the world. I, I am not the one, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm going to be pointing to the Messiah because we know this biblical background. So John is the one who, illuminated by the divine light, points us away from himself and towards the divine light, saying, I am the servant of this, this transcendent reality that is breaking into our world. Um, I am pointing you to the truth, good news, and beauty of God will re reveal itself in Christ, full of grace and truth, etc. Yeah, well done. So you see in a, in, a, in a work of art that embodies this sort of pre-modern Christian worldview, these assumptions about reality, spiritual reality, the place of humans in it, God who reveals himself in it, and so on. Take an architectural example of a pre-modern world. Uh, 
Salisbury Cathedral, something. I don't know if you've been here. But we, we had one of the teaching days the other year was at Salisbury Cathedral. You've been around it and done the tour. I think it's great. Pick this. Uh, very impressive building. I love the font. The font. We've seen the, the new font. The running water. Yeah. <coughs> uh, Gothic cathedrals are some of the crowning achievements of Western architecture. They're more like giant sculptures than just buildings, and every archway and decoration has meaning and purpose. And they're reflecting a worldview that, that contains the idea that there is real meaning and purpose out there to, to be reflected uh, literally in the in the in the font here. Um, I love thinking about the way in which the church in medieval times was at the, the forefront and the cutting edge of communications technology. Mm. <laughs> um, we don't necessarily think about that these days we're just saying oh that's sort of old fashioned but this is this is the church giving you um, full colour visual display units called stained glass windows that communicate to an audience that's mainly illiterate giving them access to biblical stories. We've got uh, full stereophonic sound. <laughs> now just look at the choir stools. Why are the choir stools set up on the left and the right instead of just being all together? So you can have stereophonic sound. Um, you can go back and back and, and forth, rather than it all just being in mono. Um, sometimes they would split them up into into the galleries upstairs around the place as well. So it was like 5.1 surround sound. Mm. You know. Uh, Dr. Emmanuel Papouas says it was, it was the monk's commitment to reading and writing and education that ensured the survival of Western civilization after the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, they laid the foundation for European universities and became the bridge between antiquity and modernity. Um, or the yeah, Indian philosopher Vish Vishal Mangwadi says the scientific perspective flowered in Europe as an outworking of medieval biblical theology nurtured by the church. The Bible created and underpinned the scientific outlook. Um, that's from his fascinating book, uh, The Book That Made Your World. It's very interesting reading a book by an Indian philosopher who's a convert to Christianity talking about the cultural influence of the Bible on things like education and science and healthcare and so on. Uh, here's another example of the cutting edge technological nature of medieval Christianity. This uh, at Salisbury Cathedral is the claimed oldest working clock in the world from about 1386-ish. Um, there they are, so they the church supporting modern technology. Um, and so you have this worldview, Mangawan is pointing out, in which uh, you think there is a, a rational but free creator God uh, who created the cosmos, including us, in his image, a little lower than the angels only. And therefore, it kind of makes think, sense to think we can probably understand something about God's nature because he made us in his image. We won't be able to comprehend him, 
but we will be able to grasp something of him in his ways and to grasp and understand something at least of the ways that the cosmos he really created works. Um, because the way that kind of our minds work, the way our faculties work, and the way the world works, both come from one and the same rational, self-consistent embodiment of truth, goodness and beauty. So, if this comes from him, this comes from him, they probably have quite a fit together. And that's kind of the basic thought underlying the scientific worldview. As Alvin Plantinga says, modern science arose within the bosom of Christian theism. That's a shining example of the powers of reason that God has created us with a display of the image of God in human beings. So we should take science very seriously. I've got a quote, let's see if my... Uh, speakers are charged now. Uh, a bit of Shakespeare here, but this is uh, from the film With Now and I. Uh, Grant is quoting this uh, little quote from Shakespeare, which I think sort of sums up the sort of uh, pre uh, modernist uh, understanding of human nature quite nicely. So, a slightly um, drunk and dissolute uh, out of work actor quoting this wonderful passage from Shakespeare about how marvellous people are and how marvellous creation is, but how depressed he is as well, how terrible everything is, and sort of the juxtaposition uh, of these two things, and sort of gazing up at the, at the stars of the heavens whilst lying in the gutter, rolling around in his own misery. Um, what is man that you are mindful of him? Um, uh, from the Psalms. Uh, of course, I think Shakespeare there is, is presenting sort of classic Christian understanding of human nature, that on the one hand, what a piece of work, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god, on the one hand. But on the other hand, <laughs> we're fallen and sinful and everything we've gone to hell in a handbasket, kind of. <laughs> and you get this very sort of balanced view. Uh, that's promising. Okay, so I'm going to play you a song and give you a little group discussion time afterwards, and then we'll do some feedback. So this, again, we've got um, Makoto Fujimura's Graceful Told here. Uh, I'm sorry if this isn't your musical taste, but I have a song uh, from the Christian Celtic prog rock band Iona uh, uh, from their uh, album, recent, most recent album, and this is a track, an excerpt from a track called An Atmosphere of Miracles, and I've got the lyrics there for you, it should be on your sheet here somewhere probably as well. Uh, if you've got that. This is the paper, and you've got the. I don't know how that. 
well, up here anyway. Um, and I think uh, these go together nicely, and we can sort of reflect upon both the art and the, the music and the lyrics. And again, sort of keep in mind that sort of balance, sense of balance from the uh, Christian worldview here. Um, just a, cu a couple of minutes of this, and I'll give you a bit of discussion time on how this, how you can see this as expressing what elements of Christian worldview and spirituality. That'll be enough because he's about to go into a long guitar solo. So, <laughs> if you like guitar solos, go and get the recent Iron album. But let's have a discussion. Uh, we've got the lyrics. We've got the the painting that I happen to have uh, put with it. Um, how is this expressing a Christian spirituality? I remember there's sort of different uh, levels of spirituality and so on. Um, what's coming through of a Christian world and life view through this art? Have a chat and we'll do a feedback in a few minutes. Cool, okay. And the conversation seems to have ground from natural halt, so let's uh, stoke it up again. Um, do you want to start with the... The, the the lyrics, the music, the painting. Who has thoughts on what? Good morning, all stuff presently in five minutes. Followed <laughs> <laughs> by a two-minute silence at eleven o'clock. Where the grass who are nicely listening to me right now. <laughs> 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 Um, yes. I, I feel like all of them communicate hope. Yeah. Um, the, both the way the music was written, like the kind of, it's like it felt like I'm, I don't know, it very major, very like, mm -hmm. and the art as well. The compare, the like the contrast between the like the gritty colours, but you just feel like light is breaking through in the art and the lyrics. But yeah, I think so for me. Hope was the major emotion listed by all three. Okay, so there's a, a unifying sort of hopefulness to it. What else is implied by the fact that hope is a major theme? That life can be difficult. Yeah, so there's, there's difficulty and there's hope. Mm. You can't, you know, have one without t'other, basically. Mm. So... Yeah, even in the music, there was a background piano theme that was modulating between major and minor. You had the dee dee da dum, dee dee da dum, dee, all the way weaving through in the background of the of the theme. Um, sorry, my singing is not in perfect pitch, but you remember the the, the theme. Um, so it's modulating between. <laughs> Uh, the, the major and the minor I'm constantly in the background there yeah um. <laughs> come on the music player is happy you might have music player is sad I can run with that yeah yeah so major major is the is the, the chord that sounds happy and then you depress one of the notes on a piano you've got the, the white notes and the black notes and so the major chord of of C would be all white notes, and we C, E, G, and, and C. And that would be a chord. And then if you take one of those, you take one of those white notes, and you go 
down half a tone to one of the black notes, mm. and then that will make it sound sound sad, mm. in, and then go into the into the minor um, by just changing half a tone in the chord, um, and that you get this sort of emotional difference between major and minor. Yeah, well, well put. Uh, yeah. What else? So for the painting, it's almost like the gold is sort of slowly colonising the rest of it. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. It's kind of almost like pixels of mm. yeah. gold and, gl- and glory, isn't it? That So you've got a sort of sense of movement. It's not just mm. um, a uniform surface of gold. It's sort of made up of these cells of yeah. gold. Then you get this sort of sense of it gradually filling in. Yeah. yeah. But it does gradually fade out. There's quite a separation yeah. painting of like what's at the top compared to what's yes. at the bottom of the main thing. And we've got this this the one sort of um, horizontal yeah. line of in the painting <clears throat> sort of separates the two. Yeah, it's sort of a little bit below the midpoint. So it's kind of like our our reality below the horizon line and the transcendent divine reality above outside of our world and that's that transcendent reality is where the glory is and yet most of the painting is in this horizontal form and you've both got the glory sort of coming down but what else is what else do you kind of feel is coming down out of the transcendent into there's a little bit of gold in, into our world, but being kind of poured down into our world. What emotionally do you sort of get from the, the colours and that you get this sort of being poured into the world? It's quite sort of relaxed and peaceful almost. Mm-hmm. On one side, and then the more sort of green black, small streak of red in the areas, more yeah. like turbulent. Yeah. So, I mean, green and blue are very calm, peaceful colours. Blue, of course, has resonances of, of water being sort of poured out. Water, source of life, I'm the water of life. Um, green, fruitfulness being poured into life, a little bit of dark turbulent black, a little bit of red dripping down along with this outpouring of a vertical drip of what's that, blood mixed in with the out, yeah (laughs) we picked up on this so there's something about a sort of outpouring from heaven of the water of life and fruitfulness amongst the turbulent darkness of the world and maybe that sort of reference to that costing something and so again you know it, this is not a pa- painting of the crucifixion <laughs> but you look uh, at this uh, visual stimuli together with the title it's often how modern art works <laughs> for long enough knowing the background context, and you start to just go, oh yeah, that's what it's saying. But it's it's communicating it more at a sort of gut emotional mm-hmm. level, 
if this is trying to grasp your heart first and to then lead you to thinking about what is he saying he thinks is true about the world? It's not starting off with a sort of photographic, what do he think is true in history? Here's a painting of Jesus being crucified. And then thinking, well, how has he done that painting emotionally? Mm. Which you might with a sort of classical work of art. So he's sort of starting more from the heart than from the head, moving in a different direction. But it is still expressing a Christian spirituality and worldview, you know. Yeah. And so we have this very bad, sort of balanced view of humanity, uh, this balanced view of there's this world and there are difficulties and struggles and things, uh, but there is another world, there is hope, but in the meantime there are struggles. You know, we're talking about in the lyrics of the song, the need for, for courage, uh, uh, fighting against fear, being defeated by love, a love that will heal, that will restore. Um, I, I love the lyrics, like water to the desert, like a key to the door that opens up to freedom, that opens up to life, that there's more to come um, than just here. Uh, but you've got to put up with it in the meantime. But yeah, in the meantime, our king is here with us. And it's not just a sort of, there's this world and there's the transcendent sort of platonic world up there. and. Well, you can sort of hope to sort of put up with it in the meantime, and then eventually when you die, your soul will float off and it will be you know, wonderful. <laughs> kind of, there's more of this sense, as you get with the painting as well, of it's a god who is interested in intervening in the world to do something purposeful with it and with our lives. Yeah? And you get that, I think, from, from both here. Marvellous. So that is our... Uh, just introduction to thinking about the um, the pre-modern sort of Christian worldview and some of the key elements about God, creation, transcendent truth, beauty, goodness, revelation, um, the foundations of modern science, so on coming from those theological ideas. Um, I'm keeping my eye on the clock so we can eleven. So and then one day and I'm not, don't ask me to date it when this is trouble Francis Schaeffer got himself in sort of he, he, he like drew what he called the line of despair in culture and sort of you know this happened in sort of 1829 like, on a Friday you know like well no things sort of gradually happened over a number of years uh, and culture gradually shifted and there sort of became this time when people sort of realised, hey, we, we're, our sort of worldview of spirituality has changed a bit, and we have uh, this sort of idea of the sort of modernist uh, worldview uh, culture. In particular, I think the key here is it's turning your back on the reality of God, looking to a modernist worldview mirror. You ask the question, who is the fairest of them all? And you get back an answer, something along these lines. Um, according to science, which is the only way to know anything, you know, science with a big capital scientific S here, uh, man, and remember this was back in modernist days, so man, uh, is the fairest of them all, although of course an unverifiable value term like fair is merely an expression of emotion. 
when we talk about fairness. That's just, it's, it's just an emotional category thing. Um, that's the most rational, rational capital R, Waldorf being, to have arisen via the blind watchmaker of neo-Darwinian evolution. Man is a child of Mother Nature. We'll start talking about Mother Nature. Uh, who will soon uh, come of age, you know, man come of age, and we can reject the, the childish superstitions of religion and uh, graduate from the, uh, from the fairy tales of our childhood and become proper manly men of science in the world, going forth and doing sciencey things with business and commerce and um, plundering the natural world and etc. That's kind of, you know. Science and reason and manly manliness uh, is all sort of there with this sort of um, rational capital R, science capital S. <coughs> it's all about um, the material facts of the matter revealed by science and all of that sort of transcendent spiritual religious mumbo jumbo. That's all about that. That's really just all about your feelings and uh, that's all just sort of subjective stuff uh, that we now explain away uh, as just the sort of byproduct of of chemical reactions in your brain um, and so on you know yeah that's a sort of scientific and modernistic worldview with all these people in their lab coats you know, kind of, yeah <sighs> so um, given that kind of worldview um, I think here's a very interesting bit of recent art by the band Muse. It's their track, The Second Law, from the album uh, uh, The Second Law, and their track, Unsustainable. And they're thinking about the sort of place of humanity and what culture is doing on the basis of this kind of worldview. I, th I think you see a sort of deep um, troubledness about this kind of music and con contrast the sort of the emotional feeling of this kind of music uh, with the music we just had uh, and so on, uh, as well as uh, looking at the lyrics and the imagery of the, the music video that they have. I think this is a, a fascinating uh, bit of uh, artwork. So let's hope this all technologically works. An isolated system, we're talking about thermodynamics there, and the fact that in an isolated system, you start with a certain amount of usable energy that gradually gets dissipated into unusable forms and you can't create energy. Um, so uh, everything is dying uh, in an isolated system. There's no, no beyond our natural material world. Um, once you've got rid of the, the supernatural We've just got the material world. People are just material objects. You had all of those sort of diagrams of synapses and brain scans through the body. We're just material parts, cogs in this big material system that's gradually dissipating and dying. And we have ourselves and our civilization built upon the use of usable energy. And there is no hope. Ultimately, long term, you are unsustainable.
Um, that's what's being talked about at an ideological level, but have a chat with one another about how that's playing out in the artistic communication, in the, what does it feel like to inhabit that worldview and that spirituality? Um, how are they communicating that in the, in the music and the, the imagery of the, the music video and so on? I have a, a few minutes to be back before we have to go up for, for President Lab.
that was like when you the job to like kill yeah. robotic kind of and it's like it's like there's this like tension yeah. so, and then it kind of just leads into something that people are kind of scared of but at the same time yeah. potentially we're up to losing we're the versus we're running and then you're running us and it just leads to this like empty robotic noise that will be existentialist as I'm saying so it's actually kind of very effective and they have and they have the, the kind of manic running around with the stock market and then you're just like running in going in Okay, we can reconvene. Interesting comments already. So, what do we we uh, make of how this artwork is expressing a modernist spirituality worldview? You're talking about the like seeing through the woods. Yeah. Um, what were you talking about? Seeing through the woods. Yeah. Like despair. They're running around. They deliberately use people wearing grey and. Yes. Yeah, the, t- the tonal yeah, colour palette is quite kind of stark and... And not knowing where you're going and, like, just running. Yeah. Because you have so, else to do. So, yeah, running, but to what? For what? And from what? Like, did yeah. show what it was from? Or? Yeah, well, there was, there was a sort of sense that they were running from yeah. something. So there's something scary and frightening. Yeah, yeah. And they're running, but they don't know to where or to what. Yeah. Uh, sort of, I heard someone comment about they're running around like headless chickens. Uh, uh, so, yeah, yeah. I think the music, the like style of the music builds up that tension, and the, the like the strings and the tempo, all, it like has this effect that it, it almost felt quite cinematic. Yes. In the and and that's why it really worked with the videos. This like cinematic thing building up tension, then you drop this horrible, well not horrible, but intentionally like not very nice sounding robotic kind of yeah. sound that is meant. And it's like it's meant to build up fear, and then you end up with this kind of unsustainable yeah. fear-inducing We've got this, thing, this sort of, like, yeah. the people are just running out of some sense of fear or something, and then it leads to this like emptiness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a demonically red-eyed robot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, a scary robot. Yeah. And there's a sense, of course, within the materialistic worldview, in which everything that you acknowledge as real has to fit within. The, the limitations of that sort of materialistic box. Uh, everything has to be either be sort of um, reduced to, explained in terms of the material, or its reality has to be denied. Um, so, sort of, what is a human being? What is a mind? Is it some sort of? Is there some sort of spiritual soul or whatever? Well, no. All you are is these synapses and electrical signals, and you're part of this material system. Um, you know, uh, is there any transcendent? No, we're in this closed material system, uh, etc. Yeah. Anything else? Any other? On the on the mind thing, I find it interesting mm. that it would kind of have that. It almost sounded a little bit kind of worshipful, with like the ah, when you yeah. the brain scan, and that's like the thing that's kind of worshipped nowadays. Yes. Reason, yes, yeah, I am. man is the most rational of all creatures and therefore the sort of humanistic 
what is great about people, it's, it's exactly, yes, you know, well, we can think better than animals can. That's, uh, so we can, we can ponder our fate. <laughs> you know, um, does that lead to more happiness than <laughs> the animals? Um, probably not. Yeah. yeah. We were um, discussing about how, um, like, the material side of it, like looking at it into your brain, and we were talking about how, um, like, we're told increasingly to look into ourselves to find mm -hmm. who we are, mm -hmm. um, and find our identity in us, mm -hmm. um, and we may use things like our job or family or friends mm. or what we look like to make our identity, but ultimately, yeah. like it, it always will fail. And we were like we're talking about like mental health mm. and like how so many people in our generation suffer from mental health illnesses mm. Mm. and you were like kind of linking that to like a loss of purpose, if no feeling of purpose because of emptiness. Yeah. And like the words like you were saying, mm. this desperate scramble and fear induced yeah. searching for something that we don't quite know what. Yes. Yeah. Or searching for something that we we kind of telling ourselves that we ca we can't actually have. It's mm, not actually real. Yeah, I said we have this sort of desire for transcendent, given meaning, purpose, identity, mm. uh, hope, etc. In our hearts, at the same time that our heads are telling us, because of our worldview, that actually. That's at best a sort of cruel joke. Those longings, mm. those longings can't be fulfilled if the world is as we think it is, mm. uh, and we've got to sort of make our peace with that as best we can. Somehow, mm. yeah, we've got to sort of squish ourselves, squish these longings into this box by sort of denying them or saying, "Can we meet them within this box or or not?" You know, yeah. So you see, I think there's a, lo a lot going on in there, and, and we're beginning to tease apart the way in which once you've got rid of the sort of transcendent, the supernatural, God and anything like that, um, it, if you then try and sort of, you're trying to live out a spirituality that's consistent with that, um, what is that producing in terms of... Um, the sort of consistency of the levels between your, your view of reality and your, your feelings and your longings and your heart and how you behave in the world. Um, here, here we have a song that's all about the, the unsustainability and ultimate dangers of consuming energy in a, in a sort of mass market capitalist consumerist society that is of course being produced and communicated through mass market consumerism. Please, please buy our album warning you about the dangers of mm. Mm. Yeah. buying mass market consumerist society okay. products. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This one's really so. interesting because it does it does feel like the lives of a lot of my peers, particularly from school, um, 
who are now who are now working for the Bank of England or working mm. for like corporates, or, and and they've literally just run, and then they've gone to uni and they've run, mm. and they've gone to guild socials for their entire because mm. their their degree is just for the purpose of the next thing, which just yeah. for the purpose of the next thing, which is the purpose of the next thing, and actually, like, what does it what does yeah. it end with? And What's the whole thing for? And it, yeah, yeah, exactly, and yeah. it ends up being quite unsustainable because they're in doing that and not thinking about the ethical consequences of it, yeah. contributing to quite to a yes unjust system yeah. anyway. But that like it's it's really interesting because it this is very little thought yeah. and see. Well, can, 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 does it even make sense within a materialist worldview to talk about the ethical consequences of... No, but they really... It's for that reason I find the video really difficult to place because it seems to be making a critique of it without really being able to find a solution and seems to be contributing to the problem, to, to the yeah. problem itself. Yeah. Um, well, again, do you, do you need, in order to make a critique, you need somewhere to stand... Outside of the system that you're critiquing, but on their view of the world, there is no outside in which to stand over and judge the system. There is just the system. Yeah. Okay. Some quotations I think are quite interesting. This is from. Um, American atheist Alex Rosenberg is but the atheist guide to reality. He's got this nice summation of his atheistic creed and then talks about some of the implications of his atheistic materialistic worldview. Uh, is there a God? No. What is the nature of reality? What physics says it is. What's the purpose of the universe? There is none. What's the meaning of life? You say, there is none. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Is there a soul? Are you kidding? Is there free will? Not a chance. What happens when we die? Everything pretty much goes on as before except us. What's the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. Very starkly laying it on the line. Um, he says, individual human life is meaningless, without purpose, without ultimate moral value. We need to face the fact that nihilism is true. So he thinks nihilism is implied by a materialistic worldview. I think I agree with him. But notice that he's, he's saying we, we need to face this. We need to be self-consistent. He's saying he places a value on consistency and living in line with how you think reality is. Okay, but then if he's saying that there's no good or bad, no right or wrong, right. I mean, you might as well just go and do whatever you want. Right. If he so, gets annoyed with someone and he kills someone, it's matter, then he's being fully integrated in his yeah. view. So this, this is now the that. debate between modernism and postmodernism coming in here. The first one is, says, yeah, you, you, you say we've got to be consistent and live with the fact that getting rid of God and so on has certain implications, logically speaking, and we ought to live consistently with that. But then the postmodernist says, but hang on a minute, 
you said we, we ought to be consistent. You said there isn't any such thing as a real ought um, or purpose. Or, or why should I care about consistency and facing reality? And aren't those all pre-modern values? Mm-hmm. So who is being the more consistent? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He says creating purpose in a world that can't happen is like trying to build a perpetual motion machine, trying to deny the laws of thermodynamics from the Muse song after you've discovered nature's ruled them out. If that seems hard to take, there's always Prozac, Mm -hmm. he says. Mm -hmm. Not just a throwaway line as a sort of joke. Uh, He comes back to this, and that's from page 19 in the book, towards the end, page 282. He says, what should we scientistic folks do when overcome by Weltschmerz? World weariness. Um, Take two of whatever neuropharmacology prescribes. Because... I mean, basically, you are neuropharmacology from his point of view. So if you want to change your mental state because you're depressed, change your neuropharmacology. That's really... Don't beat about the bush. Is that the enjoying life part of his enjoying life without illusions? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, you enjoy life by taking some Prozac, yeah. Um, so is this modernism or postmodernism? So we're still in uh, modernism. We're still in modernism. Yeah, yeah, I... I he, he is trying to point out the consistent worldview that follows from a denial of the transcendent, of the supernatural, of God, anything like him. Um, but he is trying to uh, live, he thinks consistency is important, and he's trying to work through the implications of this worldview in terms of, well, how do I live in the world consistently with this? And we just mentioned the sort of postmodern critique of, and there's a, you can see there's a certain rightness to that, but we'll, we'll come back to that. He, he mentioned about our scientific folks. Um, you've got to very carefully distinguish between science and scientism. Scientism is a sort of elevation of science into a complete worldview, particularly in the area of, of knowledge. Um, as Rosenberg says, being scientific means treating science as our exclusive guide to reality. <coughs> and that would be science philosophically defined in such a way that it that it is that its answers are always going to be consistent with a materialistic worldview. Mm-hmm. That that sort of philosophy is built into a materialist understanding of science. Trust science is the only way to acquire knowledge. It's the only avenue to knowledge, not just one way of knowing things. Among others, thank you. Mm, I was just saying things going to go away. Yeah. So, um, sorry? No, sorry. No. Um, Peter Atkins, and his book called Being, he's a British chemist, one of the new atheists. Uh, says, I stand by my claim that the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality. The only way of acquiring reliable knowledge is is through science. Uh, Saving Leonardo is a fascinating book if you enjoy the sort of topic that we're discussing today. Nancy Piercy, who was a sort of follower of Francis Schaeffer, uh, American Christian philosopher at uh, Houston Baptist University now. Uh, and she's got a book all about this sort of cultural analysis in, in worldview terms. 
very lavishly illustrated book. And she talks about the, the, the idea of this strict separation of fact from value that is a sort of key part of a modernist spirituality. This is the key to unlocking the history of the modern Western mind. Because people have always known that there's a distinction between is and ought, between descriptive statements and normative statements. In earlier ages, and in a pre-modern worldview, world however, people thought both types of statement dealt with questions of truth. That whether you're describing the way things are, or describing how things, or prescribing how things ought to be, you're, you're dealing with statements of, of that are either true or false about reality, about the facts of the matter. Um, if you made a moral statement about what someone ought to do, it was either true or false under that view. But under the modernist view, that's no longer the case. If you make a claim about the real world as understood, revealed by science, then that's true or false. Um, if you make a claim about moral or aesthetic matters, that's just your subjective opinion. Because science doesn't reveal an, a true or false answer to that issue. So science will tell me how much arsenic do I need to put in the teapot in order to inherit Aunt Mabel's estate subsequent to afternoon tea today. <laughs> but science will not tell me whether that makes me a cad or not for doing that. Yeah? So you, you end up on the modernist view with this split between facts and values. Uh, values are just private, subjective, relative, invented by humans or by cultures and so on. Facts are the public, objective, universal things discovered by the natural sciences. So what would they say about something that's quite universal in the sense of something like um, killing someone is bad. Yeah, they would say, well, our evolutionary history has programmed us to feel uh, badly about the killing of people because killing people is, was not uh, conducive to the survival of the species in our evolutionary past. Okay, but that's not, that's regardless of past, that's a, rep, that's a objective fact now that, if, well, apart from some people you wouldn't feel bad murdering somebody normally, you know, yeah. you but, but if you say, it, it, of course the, the modernist would recognise, well, I might, if I were to try and kill someone, I would feel bad. But if you ask, is that feeling telling you something true, morally speaking, is that feeling accurately reflecting moral reality to you, the modernist reply is, what moral reality? That there is no such thing. There's just the material world revealed by science. And part of that material world is an evolutionary history that means that my neuron and my neuronal chemistry, electrical signals in my brain, function in a certain way that gives me a certain feeling when I contemplate certain actions full stop. That's all there is to that moral feeling or intuition. It's not telling you something true about reality. 
Yeah. Well, of course, on a pre-modern view, exactly, you do want the pre-modernists would want to say, no, no, it's really true that you ought not to murder. <laughs> that that you know that's a bad thing. Um, there are facts about values. There are value facts. There's not a distinction between facts and values on a pre-modern view. On the modernist view, that you, you never really get this this fact-value distinction. Now, this scientistic demand that every rational belief must be justified by evidence, that science is the only way to, to reliably know things, and the way of cashing that out would be to say, in order for any of your beliefs to be rational, you've got to have some scientific evidence for it. Yeah. Um, well, that's, it's, from a philosophical view, point of view, very um, bad viewpoint, uh, because that statement itself is a statement that can't be justified by evidence. Uh, the, the science will tell you about the arsenic, it doesn't tell you about the, the moral reality of the matter. Uh, science doesn't tell you whether or not it's true that in order for your beliefs to be rational, you must have scientific evidence for them. <laughs> um, indeed, in order to do science, you have to think you know things before you do any experimentation in order for the experiment and the, or the observation to be able to tell you anything about reality. Um, such a demand would generate an infinite regress. If I say, I've, I've got some belief, A, about reality, uh, in order for A to be reasonable and justifiable and, and to be something that I think I can call something I know, I've got to have B, some scientific evidence that points to the truth of A in scientific terms. Um, otherwise I dismiss it as just subjective and so on. Um, but why should I think that B is true and something that I can call knowledge? Well, I can only think that if I've got C, some scientific evidence that points to the truth of B and to the truth of the fact that B does indeed support the truth of A. But why should I believe that C is... So if I keep asking that question, it's just, I can never justify any belief if I make the demand that all of my beliefs have to be justified through a scientific methodology. In other words, you can't, you can't prove everything, you have to start from somewhere in order to get on with the business of proving things. Uh, Another angle on this is it's just open to obvious counterexamples. So, yeah, exactly. I would want to say um, torturing small children just for the fun of it is wrong. Um, that seems so painfully obvious to me that if you have a, a theory of how we know things um, into which that, the, that intuition being something that's revealing a fact about reality to me doesn't, just doesn't fit... Well, so much the worse for your theory of how we know things. Um, I don't think any of the reasons you could give me for thinking that we only know things through science, I don't think any of those reasons is going to be more convincing to me than 
the obviousness of the intuition that it is wrong to torture small children just for fun. You know, <laughs> try thinking of something more obvious than that <clears throat> that you could use as a lever to change my mind to a scientific view of things, as it were. <laughs> so I just think they you know rainbows are beautiful. And if you don't think so, you're wrong. <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, whether or not atonal music is beautiful or not, well, that might be more complicated, but there are, there are clear cases, I think. Um, so, um, we've talked about the way in which a, a, a materialistic worldview sort of reduces people, you have to stuff people inside this sort of materialistic, acceptable box of things. And there's a sense in which, uh, you can see this sort of working out in... in uh, stereotypical modernist architecture um, well why not put people in literal boxes <laughs> um, in a sense this is a very efficient, scientifically efficient as well <coughs> this is, uh, uh, the French architect uh, nicknamed the Crow Le Cabousier uh, who, who described houses very famously, he described houses as machines for living in his view of, of, what a, of what a house is um, well, a house, a home, yeah, a machine for living in, or it's a machine for machines to live in on a materialistic world worldview. Um, uh, and yet, do you notice any anything interesting about these modernist boxes that we see here? Flipping depressing. Yeah. They put their own kind of colour and. Yeah, the, 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 uh, the only mitigation to the depressing boxiness of these boxes um, is the bits of colour that he's put on there to mitigate the depressingness of these boxes. Um, so there seems to be an, an appeal to this sort of intuition of, you know, that we need beauty. <laughs> beauty contributes to human flourishing. Um going hand in hand with trying to work out the implications of a materialistic worldview saying, well people are machines and we need to order society in a sort of scientifically efficient way and why don't we just view homes as machines for living in? But I think you, like you're using homes and houses in the mm. same way but houses perhaps, but a home has much more of like an emotive yeah sense of belonging and place like, so a house is mm. a, a, a physical thing and mm. could maybe be described as a machine to live in but a home isn't it's much yeah. more an emotional attachment to place yeah so but of course the, on the on the materialist fat value distinction but he said there's no such thing yeah. as a home just a house I think it's interesting as well because those those buildings in France are used in the in Bonnier, so like the mm -hmm. that's a council house estate sort of building. Yeah. So I don't know if that just feeds into his justification that oh it doesn't matter, you know. It's just you know I mean? it's, it's just the whole play. Well, yeah, do you know what I mean? Like, well, I wonder what house he lived in. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Did he? Yeah, oh, interesting to see. In saying that, it's quite interesting. Yeah. The same um, it is much easier to dismiss as unimportant that, that distinction you're drawing between house and home if you have a worldview that sets up a fact-value divide and says, 
there are facts that are scientifically knowable that are talking about reality, and you may have some emotional resonance that's just your subjective whim about um, liking a bit of colour or whatever. But um, can you look at that from a sort of pre-modern modern view and say, I, I think sort of your architecture is slightly better than your worldview implies it should be because you have let some of the, the sort of the heart's intuition of the the facts of, about beauty being good for human flourishing bleed through despite yourself mm. yeah. Is it worth saying that romanticism is also a modernist worldview that had very different set of assumptions mm. not necessarily coherent either but incoherent for different reasons and yes. therefore it, to stereotype modernism as just scientism would be wrong uh, that's a very interesting point, actually, and we had that little YouTube video <laughs> earlier that someone was playing about um, telling the trees that we love them and, and mm. sort of going down the sort of romanticist to ending up in the sort of new age uh, kind of kind of route, the kind of... Um, uh, a lot of this is, is behind the sort of the animal rights movement as opposed to the human duties towards animals movement um, as, as well. Yeah. Um, Yes, I mean, because of course, just as there's a distinction between science and scientism, and we, we looked at the fact that a lot of the roots of science has had Christian roots, and then that sort of devolved, as I would say, into scientism. Um, the uh, there's a whole philosophical discussion to, to be had about the the sort of varieties of romanticism and the, the romantic uh, view of the importance of, of value uh, and so on and how that's viewed philosophically whether that's sustainable philosophically in a view that doesn't have God in it it's not so much um, you know um, uh, yeah whether it's sustainable uh, without God, as the sort of we talked about earlier, as the, as the maximally beautiful being who creates this cosmos and people in his image capable of, of grasping these values and so on. Um, but yeah, you're, I think you're right to raise that. Um, uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. But focusing on this um, sort of modernist architecture, I just uh, played the the opening uh, credits from the um, Scandinavian crime drama The Bridge, which I, I think, yeah, very <coughs> gripping, rather traumatic Scandinavian noir crime drama series. Um, and, and the opening credits really set the, the tone uh, for the piece, uh, and a lot of it is about... Um, people with different worldviews and spiritualities rubbing each other up the wrong way as they live side by side in a, a sort of secular modernist society, uh, which is all the, the sort of roots of the crimes are expressing underlying social tensions uh, in people's different sort of work views of the world and things. Uh, and they even set it up such that people live in very isolated societal groups within society such that the, the, the coppers in the show are the only people who move between the different social levels and the different social groups. 
um, because they have to explore the roots of the crime and track it down and so on, but the people in the different social groups don't sort of mix with one another and so on. Um, just see how, how it uses the, the, the music and the architecture to sort of set the the feeling of, of underlying uh, sort of uh, alienation and suspicion uh, in uh, modern secular society. Did that come out before or after House of Cards? Ooh. Because um, the intro is basically the same. Yeah, it's quite similar, isn't it? Yeah. Um, or if you've seen, um, what's the recent uh, one that's been on, um, where the opening credits are, are like a sort of um, cityscape with a sort of mirror imaging. One of those, like they put a, a mirror in the middle of the camera and everything is like a sort of kaleidoscope of the, the city. Um, I forgot the name of it. But yeah, it's, it's quite a sort of typical kind of mood-setting opening sequence for a lot of dramas is just to have sort of the, the cityscape, mm. particularly at night, mm. under the sodium lights. Sped up. Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. sped up the, 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 the sort of impersonal movement of the functioning of the, of the, the city yeah. over the individual... Uh, so we end, end there with the sort of the close up the, the, the sort of lonely individual smoke, smoke, smoking there, you know, who's he going to be, etc. Uh, into, into the story. Um, they even said the producers watching one of the making of documentaries, the producers said every time they showed any nature uh, in the series, uh, they wanted it not to be pretty. Um, they wanted there to be a sense that uh, humans were, had alienated themselves from nature. Uh, so sort of na- nature scenes would, would take part in sort of uh, abandoned industrialised waste, wasteland or um, just sort of uh, very twiggy trees and sparse and sort of, you know, there's, there's nothing sort of pretty uh, in, the, uh, in the series. No, no, nothing to give you a sense of that sort of redemptive transcendent beyond, outside of the the dirt and grime and <laughs> horribleness of the situation uh, that they're in. Yeah. Have you seen High Rise as well? Yes, Comics. yes. Yeah, yeah High Rise is a fascinating um, uh, film based on a, a book by J.B. Ballard, uh, isn't it? Um, so in a sort of alternative 1970s where there's this sort of uh, utopian... Uh, high-rise living in a, in a gigantic skyscraper that has its own sort of swimming pool and gym level and a shop level and you could like live your whole life inside mm. this uh, skyscraper uh, except that the the architect and the rich people live the you know, architect lives at the top with a giant roof garden mm. for his wife uh, which which has in it in the roof garden uh, a sort of faux uh, sort of wooden Tudor um, house and uh, a horse and flowers and things and everything else is sort of 1970s uh, concrete modernist sort of architecture and the poorer you are the lower down in the tower block you live Uh, and then over time you see the sort of disintegration of society in this tower block as the sort of rivalries between the classes and so on. Like, Each level is like a different yeah. class. Yeah. It's like a sort of parable of... of yeah. 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 
Yes, it was a very, it's, yeah, that kind of stratification of, of society and social tensions, and they eventually boil over and everything. It goes to hell in a handbasket. Um, yeah, that was great, good uh, I'm going to skip over this, apart from just to, I'm going to play the song because it's quite long. Um, uh, do you remember some years ago the, the Body Works uh, exhibition of the um, uh, autopsied cadavers uh, uh, preserved and displayed in various sort of vignettes uh, from ordinary life, um, sort of showing you the, the inner workings of the, the human body? And then this artist, uh, Stuart Wollstoneholm, uh, went around this exhibition and wrote a song because of it. Um, thinking and meditating upon sort of what is a human being within his worldview and basically saying, you know, um, we, we get this repeated line from the chorus, without a soul we're nothing more than blood and bones. Uh, so if, if you reduce what we are to that, what is our sort of meaning and significance and things. Um, standing on the bridge of size, looking down, the water's out, we've had our run, there is no doubt, we're all washed up with the tide. Still standing on the bridge of size, our cash is blown, it's all been spent. In every way we own the rent, we're all washed up with the tide. Seems to me there's more to this than meets the eye. Something more than just the life we're living. Without a soul, we're nothing more than blood and bones. Hanging from the bridge of size, the whole thing's gone and can't be had. From don't look now to something bad, it's all washed out with the tide. And then, uh, towards the end of the song, he has, sort of goes into this bit from the Latin Mass, Requiem Eternum, Requiem, Requiem, uh, the death song, and he's sort of singing the, the death song of the image of humanity that we used to have, saying, it seems to me that there's more to life than, than just this, but science is telling me, look, that's all you are, and so we've got to have sort of the death of human nature as we used to conceive it in a pre-modern worldview and we've just got to live, live with this sort of sense of, of that we've got to mourn what we used to think we were and face up to what we are sort of it's rather heavy stuff <laughs> yeah. and then one day we look into the uh, Postmodernist worldview mirror <laughs> to signal a change of scenery when we ask who is the fairest of them all, and in a passage that contains quite a lot of quotations from postmodernists, we get an answer something like this in general terms. Um, bit of Damien Hurst armor. Uh, Although words only mean whatever they mean to you. I'd say that if I can get my colleagues to let me get away with saying that I'm the fairest of them all, then I am the fairest of them all. After all, values are merely subjective concepts programmed into the human animal by the blind watchmaker of evolution, which only cares about what works, which doesn't care about truth any more than it cares about goodness or beauty. Why should we care about truth? We must keep faith with Darwin and admit we know that all we can know is the subjective meaning of our own words. 
uh, maybe begin to get intimations that I, I would say in one sense the postmodernist is calling out the modernist for that point we saw in Rosenberg saying you think you're being consistent with your rejection of the transcendent and of God and spirituality the supernatural and you're, you're saying we need to have a spirituality that is consistent with that rejection in worldview terms but you're justifying that move to trying to consistently live out your rejection of God and so on using concepts that actually depend upon the thought that there's a God so yes you're trying to be consistent but there's a deep inconsistency in what you're saying and, and really the deeper even more consistent position is to recognise that once you've got rid of God not only do you get rid of the concepts of goodness and beauty into the subjective realm and have this fat valley distinction but actually what does a materialistic Darwinian and only kind of worldview have to say about our grasp upon truth or the notion of objective reality knowable by science and so on um, actually all we left with is just how we, are use, how we are deciding to use our language and language isn't getting us access to reality whether in aesthetics or morals or science after all we are the product of a materialistic process that doesn't care about morals or aesthetics or truth so it's even more consistent to be kind of even more nihilistic and relativistic and subjectivist and sceptical about things than new modern scientific folks who want to get rid of God but hold on to science and truth and knowledge and reality and all that. Um, yeah. And yet... If the postmodernist is saying, why should we care about truth, and so on, so on are, are they claiming that their, their, more, it, their view really is truly more consistent? <clears throat> that they are saying that their critique of the modernist is, is something true that they know? That they're really communicating to us with their words? that they're claiming to be so sceptical about and so on. So there's, there's a sense in which maybe the postmodernist has been more consistent with the rejection of God, but the more consistent they are being with the rejection of God, the more inconsistent they're becoming. You see. So would you say something like humanism is, in, is a development of that? is inconsistency from postmodernism. Uh, so I would say humanism tends to put a, a focus on the a political and ethical dimension of a modernist worldview. Um, so humanists tend to they have a, 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 a tend to have a, a modernist worldview, um, but in which they're saying people are important and valuable because we're the most rational creature that there is. Uh, and we need to um, organise society um, in line with scientific knowledge of people and the world and so on so that we can enjoy life the best and, and make people happy. Um, but if you say if they followed what they believed about God, are you, I'm just like trying to get this 
So modernists yeah. followed a really what they believed about God and actually like applied it to all spheres of their yeah. life. Then they would end up with it more. They'd end up postmodernist. Yes, yeah. so I'm saying that. I'm, what I'm saying is philosophically, the more you try and consistently work through the the implications of getting rid of God from your worldview, the more inconsistent you're going to be at all levels of your spirituality and between all levels of your spirituality. On average, kind of, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the French philosopher Jean-François Lyotard, Lyotard, not Lyotard, that's an entirely different sort of story, uh, characterised postmodernism as an incredulity towards meta-narratives. That is, philosophers speak for being sceptical about having a big story of reality that makes sense of things. Uh, and into which you can put the little pieces of your life into a, a big story that makes sense of those pieces of your life. It's saying the postmodernist is sceptical about the human ability to tell any coherent big story of reality that we think is true, that we know, that makes sense of things. Mm. Uh, that is, of course, his big story of reality that he's trying to fit everything to make sense of, saying nothing makes sense. Um, everything is senseless and I really want you to understand this because I'm trying to communicate it to you using you know words that have sense and meaning and I have a purpose in trying to communicate this to you and there is no purpose and I think this is true and we can't access truth and so you get these multiple self-contradictions don't have a song for postmodernism. So much as I try, any suggestions that anyone has for a good piece of music to represent the postmodern worldview, I will, I will gladly uh, receive. Uh, but think of architecture again. Uh, this is something called the M2 building in Tokyo. Uh, see what's going on with this architecture. Um, you can sort of see the continuity with 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 modernism and the materials and the sort of glass and concrete. Of, of modernist and scientific production and so on, but we've got this sort of harking back to classical architecture with the, the column and the, uh, the scrolled uh, Corinthian capital and so on. And yet that column is not doing anything functionally. It's got no architectural functional purpose. It's just there to say, hey, remember classical architecture? That's fun. So, look what I've done. Uh, let's sort of mishmash everything together. See this T-shirt that I that I am wearing today. Look carefully at my my T-shirt. I think this is Japanese. Uh, remember, there's a famous Japanese artist that you may remember of a painting of a storm and, and people in some canoes uh, being overwhelmed by a wave, and this is very reminiscent of this. Uh, And this shape of a wave here may remind you of Mount Fuji in Tokyo, of course. And if you you trace the the bumps along the back of this wave here, and this sort of eye here, and the mouth of the wave, so you may suddenly see that this is a picture of Godzilla. (laughs) 
um, pictured uh, as a wave in this old uh, Japanese art form. So this is sort of the mixing of uh, traditional contemporary culture, um, expressing something modern using something pre-modern, um, and just jumbling everything up. Um, because, well, there is no one you know, context that we now believe in that makes sense of everything into which we have to fit everything. We just sort of pick and choose as we like. Um, not for any particular purpose that we're trying to fulfil everything, but just go, well, let's have fun. We might as well have fun with it. It's a sort of existentialist sort of nihilism is true, so we might, might as well paint a smile on. And, you know, as Albert Camus said, the central philosophical question is why not suicide? You've got to find some reason for getting out of bed in the morning. Um, <laughs> um, so my, my t shirt, I think, is, is fairly postmodern. Um, Ravi Zacharias, uh, the Christian apologist, tells a fascinating story about this building, the Rexler Centre for the Performing Arts, um, which on a uh, speaking tour, I think this must be back in the 1980s. But again, you can see that the architecture here, the sort of sense of fragmentation. You've got a sort of um, castle um, turret here, but it's been broken apart by the uh, glass and steel sort of architecture of, of the modern. So it's it sort of, is this a castle with, cre you know, turrets and the sort of crenellations and so on? Or is it a sort of modern thing? Um, well, Zacharias tells this, this story. He says, postmodernism tells us that there's no such thing as truth. No such thing as meaning in an objective sense. No such thing as certainty. I remember lecturing, lecturing at Ohio State University, one of the largest universities in this country. I was minutes away from beginning my lecture and my host was driving me past a new building called the Rexner Center for the Performing Arts. And he said, oh, this is uh, America's first postmodern building. Uh, I was startled for a moment, and I said, what's a postmodern building? Um, and he said, well, the architect said that he designed this building with no design in mind. When the architect was asked why, he said, if life itself is capricious, why should our buildings have any design or any meaning? So he has, he has pillars that have no purpose. He has stairways that go nowhere. Uh, he has a senseless building built and somebody's paid for it. Zacharias <laughs> uh, replies, I said, so his, his argument was that if life has no purpose and design, why should the building have any design? He said, that's correct. And I said, did he do the same with the foundation? Did he do the same with the foundation? <laughs> All of a sudden there was science. You see, you and I can fool with the infrastructure as much as we would like, but we dare not fool with the foundation because it will call our bluff in a hurry. This is, you know, he's claiming to get away from these notions of truth and objective reality and meaning and purpose and so on, and to, to reflect that and communicate that in his architecture and uh, his artistry and so on. But uh, of course, he's not going to apply those principles to building the foundations of this building. Otherwise, he knows reality 
known through principles of engineering, through science and so on, is going to call his bluff, and that building is not going to stay up. <laughs> um, William Lane Craig argues that the idea we live in a postmodern society is a myth. He thinks that a postmodern culture is an impossibility and that it would be utterly unlivable. You couldn't really consistently live with postmodernism. And he points out that people, he thinks people are not relativistic when it comes to matters of science and engineering and technology. Rather, they're relativistic in matters of religion and ethics. But of course, that's not postmodernism, that's modernism, he says. It's the fact value distinction from modernism. Um, we live in a culture that remains deeply modernist, he argues. Uh, I have a certain sympathy with that. Um, J.P. Morland um, recently wrote a paper where he, he distinguishes what he calls four degrees of postmodernism, four grades of postmodernism, if you like. Um, at the top here, the sort of first grade, talks about value-denying, axiological value-denying postmodernism, which, which is, I think, as Craig points out, really the same, it's the same as modernism. It is the scientific, uh, you've got to know things through science, fact-value-divide kind of modernism. But at uh, the very least, people make, make claims to believe and to live within a spirituality that uh, goes into a, a deeper grade of postmodernism. Uh, I probably agree with Craig that they, they can't possibly actually live consistently with it because it's not possible. But there certainly are people who claim to believe and to live consistently with these deeper grades of, of postmodernism. Uh, if you move on from the value-denying, fat-value distinction, to an epistemic postmodernism, a knowledge denying, denying the objectivity not only of, of beauty and goodness, but of truth and knowledge. So it's a deeper, more broad kind of postmodernism. Deeper than that, deeper than knowing knowledge, is to deny that there's any truth that you even could know. It's one thing to say, uh, I don't know any of the answers. Your questions. It's another thing to say there are no answers to any of your questions. And deepest of all, uh, optical reality denying is to say not only are there are no answers to your questions about reality, but there, there is no reality. What are you talking about? Reality. All we've got is we're shut up with our words. <laughs> the author is there. So he distinguishes these, these grades, and, and you could sort of say modernism and this sort of axiological, shallow postmodernism, they're basically the same kind of thing. And the more you kind of call the, the, the shallow postmodernist modernist bluff of trying to hold on to um, truth and, and knowledge and science and, and meaning of language and so on, uh, and call them to live consistently with that denial, the more inconsistent they become with reality. And the harder and harder it becomes to actually live, live that out consistently. 
Uh, says uh, Professor Doug Grothaus says, postmodernism is often presented as a radical departure from modernism. Uh, it is a departure in the sense that it is a critique of modernism. Um, but it's easy to miss, says Grothaus, the insight that postmodern is in many ways modernism gone to seed. Says. It's modernism carried to its logical conclusion and inevitable demise. Because that old, that well, sort of the logical conclusion of the modernist view, the more you follow it, the more inconsistent with your, yourself and the way you actually live it will become. Um, so yeah, I think Friedrich Nietzsche is a good example of this sort of deep postmodernism that, that really becomes the same as, as nihilism, a sort of Rosenberg nihilism. Nietzsche and you know people argue over whether he was a sort of a forerunner of postmodernism or whether he's warning about postmodernism. Quite where he sits on this, uh, but he makes interesting quotes and he has a fantastic moustache. Mm. So, yeah. um, he says nihilism represents the ultimate logical conclusions of our great values and ideals, having rejected, having rejected God. And he talks about the great recent event that God is dead. His most famous phrase that the belief in the Christian God has become unbelievable, that is. Um, that recent event is already beginning to cast its first shadows over Europe. For the few, at least, whose, whose eyes, the suspicion in whose eyes is strong and subtle enough for this spectacle, some sun seems to have set, some ancient and profound trust has been turned to doubt. I think that's a, a great one-phrase summary of... of nihilism and, and sort of deep postmodernism trust has been turned out because you've kicked God out there's nothing trustworthy at the foundation of your spirituality and then that has reverberations through the, through the rest of it and he asks how much must collapse now that this faith has been undermined because it was built on this faith for example the whole of our European morality He said, when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality from under one's feet. This is a sort of system. These things are dependent upon one another. You can't just get... He, he wrote a whole book sort of criticising English moralist philosophers who wanted to say, yeah, we've, we've kicked out God, we've grown up out of the nursery, uh, we've man come of age, let's all be humanists. And the important thing is that we get on making society um, better and good and that we become good people and we know these, these values and let's all just cooperate upon on that. And he's, he's sort of saying, you, you can't really have one without the other in objective terms. <coughs> um, so you get the famous uh, parable of the uh, madman uh, from Friedrich Nietzsche. It was uh, Nietzsche from whom I got the quote in that passage that I put together about postmodernism, why should you pay attention to truth? So what is the truth? A movable host of metaphors. Truths are illusions that we've forgotten are illusions. They're metaphors that have become worn out. I fear that we will never get we will never rid ourselves of God so long as we still believe in grammar. We're, we're trusting our language to grapple with and communicate 
truthfully about truth about things. Um, but if trust has turned to doubt, might not it reach even this far? Uh, interestingly, some quotes from some contemporary atheists on this very issue of, of trust turning to doubt about our own mental cognitive capacities. So atheist Richard Rorty, postmodernist philosopher, said this. He said, the idea that one species of organism, i.e. us, unlike all the others, is orientated not just towards its own increased propensity, but orientated towards truth is as un-Darwinian as the idea that every human being has a built-in moral compass that points us to truths about moral facts. The atheist John Gray, in his books for gods, says to think of science as the search for truth is to renew a mystical faith. Um, humanism is the faith that through science humankind can know the truth and be set free. But if Darwin's theory of natural selection is true, this is impossible. The human mind serves evolutionary success, not truth. To think otherwise is to resurrect the pre-Darwinian era that humans are different from all other animals. Uh, writing in New Republic, uh, Gray said, a rigorously naturalistic account of the human mind entails a much more sceptical view of human knowledge than is commonly acknowledged. And yet, if you're saying, because we believe that this naturalistic Darwinian account of ourselves is something true that we know, thank you, uh, therefore we know and it's true, and I'm, I'm truthfully communicating to you the fact that we have to be a lot more sceptical about whether or not we know anything true about reality. You see, the, the inherent contradiction in trying to say that, even. That's just, uh, Howard Taylor says, postmodernism uses reason to show that reason is invalid. Any system that's arrived at by reason and then uses reason to invalidate reason must be self-refuting. Nevertheless, postmodernism is right in saying that there is no room for reason in the modernist atheist worldviews. The modernist wants to hold on to those things whilst getting rid of God. The postmodernist says you can't hold on to those things whilst getting rid of God. But that's self-contradictory. Why does that, though, then assume that it is that reason is um, valid? Surely, if you take that, then it can, you can assume neither the reason is valid or invalid. Right, so yeah, the, the postmodernists, uh, uh, they're using the assumption that reason is valid <coughs> in making the argument that uh, the con given that you don't believe in God, the consistent thing to think is that you should be sceptical about our ability to know things reliably. Mm -hmm. I think one, one helpful way of putting it is it, if you start with base level intuitions, most people believe in some kind of morality. They believe in lots of lots of these lots of things that we would take as kind of intuitive. And so, if you intuit if you intuit postmodernism, that's fine because you've got rid of reason. Mm -hmm. But if you use reason to get to postmodernism, then you have to believe in reason. 
Yeah. You can't kind of saw off the branch that you're sitting on. Yeah. So um, if you, if, you, if postmodernism is a result of a reason process, reason to find that there's a problem with reason, doesn't that? Then you go back to intuitions again, and then you come back to the starting point of there is goodness because okay. you're back to intuitions because yeah. yeah. you've decided yeah. reason doesn't work. Right. And that. That so that's I think that's the that would be the so the, basically that so the more consistently uh, postmodernist is trying to say to the modernist you're you're being inconsistent let's be more consistent but the more consistent with the denial of God you try to be the deeper in, into inconsistency you think because you end up saying using reasons to deny to deny reason uh, and. There is another option, which is to turn, as I've got the quote from C.S. Lewis at, uh, at the end of the, the paper there, uh, go back, turn the clock back, go back on the path. Um, that there's a package deal of accepting uh, God and truth and beauty and goodness and so on, or denying all of them, and denying all of them involves you in multiple self-contradiction. And if you profess not to care about self-contradiction, to say to Nietzsche, well, why should we care about truth? Well, okay, but I don't believe you, and good luck trying to live it out. <laughs> um, but I have another option which allows you to be consistent with your actual intuition and your actual way of living, um, where you actually care about the trees. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, even if a bit disproportionately, um, but that you intuit that there are things that we should care about and that do matter and and we can know and so on, and that it involves bringing God back into the picture. So we have, we started with this pre-modern worldview that's got God as the key central foundational point, and that allows you to consistently celebrate things like objective goodness and beauty and truth, objective purpose and meaning, uh, science, not scientism, science, reason, and wisdom, and the whole sort of package deal uh, that we intuit as, as beings made in the image of God. And naturalism comes along and it wants to draw this circle differently. It wants to kick God out of the circle, put science and what science reveals, understood in naturalistic terms, at the centre. But it wants to hold on to, um, and here's where you see there are slight you know, differences. I mean, Rosenberg wants to, he's happy to get rid of meaning. Most humanists, you know, meaning, um, reason we want to hold on to, uh, truth we want to hold on to, science we want to hold on to. But we're, we're happy to just draw this kind of fact-value divide and have a sort of axiological postmodernism shallow postmodernism, if you like. And the postmodernist comes along and says, no, look, you're, this, you're trying to you know, have your cake and eat it in doing this. And we need to draw the circle <laughs> like this. We move more and more towards a deep postmodernism where trust has turned to doubt. The more consistently we try and live out the consequences of getting rid of God. So we end up getting rid of uh, not only goodness and beauty, but also truth and meaning and reason and science and we go into a sort of reality denying, truth denying, knowledge denying uh, post, post which which ultimately I think is the same thing as nihilism.
sort of Nietzschean, Nietzschean nihilism. And so that is the sort of logical sort of progression and devolution of the worldview of the spirituality, build of it, of the culture expressing the spirituality. Um, and the Christian sort of has, has the message of saying, come, come back this way. Don't go that way, come back this way. <laughs> um, come back to that. Don't go that way. Yeah. Um, but as well as, as sort of exploring this sort of, uh, sort of philosophical, ideological head level, you see this expressed in the cultural products, in the architecture, in the music, in the films in the stories we tell, in, in the t-shirts we wear, etc. Um, and that is a way into exploring those issues with people and understanding those issues being expressed in culture. Um, uh, and kind of people, you know, not everyone is interested uh, first in this sort of ideological level of, of things, uh, but you know, people, boy do they love film. Um, and understand that films have, have messages and they like Muse and they like you know, their MP3 streaming service or, or CDs back in my day uh, and so on and there are, way, there are ways in to having these, these conversations and raising these issues and, and point to the fact that, that people in the culture themselves are raising this issue that there is a sort of a felt tension uh, I felt underlying anxiety with the, the nature and place of, of human life and existence in a world where we've got rid of God and the transcendent. Mm. Um, and, and yet we long for things that ultimately seem to depend upon God and there being a transcendent. Um, and can we just dismiss those things as, oh, that's just your subjective kind of... And, and, and taking seriously the postmodernist critique that, well, it's, it's one thing to say, oh, I just reduce away or deny, you know, the objective reality of, of these airy-fairy, kind of, so say, moral and aesthetic values, mm. but can you consistently hold on to your scientific rationalism, having got rid of the god who was at the foundation of the birth of the scientific movement? Anyway. Um, so there is a sort of a plague on both the houses of modernism and postmodernism, but there's something to be learned from that 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 cultural shift and dialogue and exploring it um, that can help us to get people into the conversation and to point people back to come back to a pre-modern God-centered worldview, put first the kingdom of God, and all of these things will be added unto you. Any further questions? Points people would like to make? Yes, please. Uh, like one way that I postmodernism often applied, I think, in politics and culture today, is in mm. terms of um, gender. Mm. Um, and I'd be interested to say, to see what your response is to the idea that gender is constructed, mm. because I think to a certain extent it, it is, yeah. because we. Like gen, gen, like the 
women must like like work all like be housewives or yeah. and men must be like yes gender roles so that, oh, and like what women should look like what men should look like men should cry like this kind of thing. yeah because yeah. i i sympathize with that i think well yes that you know that is a bit looking structured but where would you i think my my friends at university would say well therefore it's all constructed there is no so yeah. like, what would your response be to that because yeah. i often do yeah yeah um yeah, I think because as females we, we hold truth in high regard and science in high regard and should pay attention to um, good scientific research on, on, on things like gender and gender roles, social sciences and so on, and the distinction between what is kind of innate and what is constructed upon that innate foundation um, and take seriously that, that conversation. Um, but whilst pointing out that it is it is simply an invalid argument to go from some things are socially constructed to the conclusion that everything is, or to or from the, from pointing out that some things are have a degree of variability possible within them, to saying therefore there are there are no limits to anything. That that's simply an, an invalid conclusion to draw from the data. So is it more like where we draw the line as opposed to if we draw the line? Right. Uh, and I think um, that's going to come down to, to deeper questions of worldview yeah. about um, your sources of knowledge yeah. that you admit to, into the conversation. If you only admit science as a source of knowledge, you're going to end up with very different answers than if you admit science and intuition yep. and uh, the the intuitional conversation across culture and time mm. and tradition and the possibility of revelation mm. uh, into the conversation. Mm. Um, but you can at least then understand why different people were going to arrive at different conclusions because they rely on drawing upon different sources of, of what they think where they think knowledge comes from mm. uh, and trying to put all that together. Um, consistently, um, so often in, in these sort of social, ethical, etc. conversations, recognizing that you see, well, I can understand why why we're we're going to disagree, or these these people are going to disagree, because they're coming from different starting points, and actually, there's very little hope of getting uni unanimity of conclusion or, or policy, kind of what we should do about this. Um, unless we solve the, the prior underlying mm. issues. It's like, you know, is there a purpose to life in line with which we ought to strive to bring our ways of living or not? Mm. Um, I guess sometimes people <laughs> do end up at the same point, even yeah. if they're coming from different... Right, and sometimes that's because we all, I think, as beings made in the image of God, ha have certain inbuilt intuitions about right. things. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and that is reflected in it. It's just, it's just like, you know, the colours coming through on Cabousier's buildings, e even though his sort of philosophy of what a building is doesn't seem to justify doing that. Because mm. um, <laughs> uh, his architecture is better than his philosophy. Mm. Um, his, his, his heart is overruling his, what his head is telling him <laughs> there. Uh, and I'd much rather people make that 
mistake, you know, not being consistent in living out <laughs> their, <laughs> their uh, false worldview assumptions. <laughs> uh, and it's much more disintegrative to try and consistently live out the false worldview assumptions. In many ways, I think it's important to recognise that we are also not very good at living out our worldview. Right, exactly. As well. Yeah. We, we are, as we saw back in the beginning, this sort of this balanced view of how great we are and how terrible we are. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that, that we are uh, not only sinners, but also, as, as the postmodernists do point out, we come from our own cultural, mm. historical perspective and biases mm. and so on. It's just that they, they generalise that falsely into a, therefore nobody can reliably know anything about anything. Mm. Um, then what you do is you say, oh gosh, yes, we do have, have, have biases and prejudices and, it, and it are historically situated. What I need to do is recognise that and take sensible steps to mitigate that as much as possible and to read and think outside of my culture and my historical age mm. and to think carefully about what are my sources of knowledge and not just going along with the crowd and to ask questions like, when you say science tells us that, do you mean science defined philosophically so that the answer, whatever it is, has to be consistent with a materialistic worldview? Mm. Or do you mean uh, science defined as following the evidence wherever it seems to point? Um, what would you do if you were in a situation where the evidence uncovered by science seemed to point away from a naturalistic worldview? Mm. <laughs> um, and, and so on. So that whole conversation about our... our, our presuppositions, our sources of knowledge, uh, how we're going about putting together a, a, a consistent worldview and spirituality and so on, um, has huge ramifications for the subjects that bubble away on top of, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg, yeah, in a sense. Yeah. Can I pin you down a bit on what it means for disintegration to occur. Because mm. I'm a bit worried that we could end up in a situation whereby we say that modernism and postmodernism um, just collapse when you take them to their logical conclusions and you try to live them consistently. Mm. And so what we should do, um, whether or not we believe it or not, is to impose some sort of theistic worldview where we can make all these a priori assumptions so that we've got something to live consistently by. So, what what is it in disintegration mm. that means that we can't do that, that we can't impose it? Because is it are we always relating it back to sort of Judeo-Christian notions of sin, or do we think that there's actually some almost kind of psychological breakdown of the inability to? Yeah, I, I think you, I, I don't think you have to cash it out in in, in terms of Judeo-Christian assumptions about sin. I think you can cash it out in terms of both philosophical notions of logical consistency and inconsistency and also in psychological uh, terms about um, pro proper functioning, flourishing, mental health right. uh, of, of people and society. Um, you know, I, if you're getting to the to the point of view where you're, you're kind of saying, well, given given this, like with Alex Rosenberg, you know, given this worldview, the fact that I'm trying to live out consistently, 
um, that's probably going to lead me to be really depressed about life, the universe, and everything. What should I do about that? Or take some Prozac. If you know if that's an answer, mm. I, you know, I suggest that you're <laughs> getting to a rather moribund kind of solution there, and then it it might at the very least be worth your while to retrace your steps a bit and think very carefully about how you got where you got, mm. and whether you really do need to end up there. Um, and I have a, a, a what I think is a working alternative for you that not only doesn't seem to lead to that psychological dead end, um, but also uh, seems not to lead to the inherent self-contradictory philosophical ends that the deep postmodernism nihilism pushes you into. Um, uh, ends which you may espouse, but which you're never going to actually consistently live with even as you inconsistently try and consistently live with them, whilst denying that consistency matters. Mm. You know, if, if you really if you get into that space, you get into a space where you know it's very difficult to have a philosophical conversation with you. But I, you know, I'll be a friend and I'll pray for you, and I will point out to you next time you watch The Weakest Link or some quick, you know, whatever quiz show on TV is popular at the moment. Um, that you're really irked when um, they stab each other in the back even though they they didn't get the worst set of answers. Um, they didn't vote in accord with the truth and that really annoyed you and you mm. thought it was immoral of them mm. and you got angry uh, and then you had to remind yourself that there is no such thing as truth and anger doesn't really reflect any moral reality and next time I step on your toe or decide to steal your stereo or torture your children just for fun um, all you can say is well I don't like that <laughs> why are postmodernists always so upset with politicians because politicians should make sense to them more than anything else it's like quite a cynical point why would they make sense to them more than anything else well, the sort of there is no, there is no, there is no morality, and you might as well just sort of be in it for yourself. Yeah, right. Well, I guess because some politicians very much believe there is morality, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. and yeah. enforcing that morality, that yeah, you know, true. fake morality on others. So. Yeah. Most of, most modernists aren't really postmodernists. Well, like they wouldn't be deep postmodernists in the sense he was talking about. Mm. In the sense he was talking about. Yeah. yeah. Is that like on some issues? The reason is they've got they create their own set of like valued statements about what is true. Most people, most people. Okay. And isn't there an implicit truth claim in what you're saying that it's best to look after our own interests or the state's interests or whatever? Yeah. I mean, you'll set up uh, um, some sort of goal that you're trying to achieve, and often. Um, I've heard it said that politicians quite often agree, agree about the goal but differ about the means mm. to the end. Um, so different economists have different theories about how best to achieve certain economic ends whilst there have been quite a lot of agreement about what ends you want to achieve. Mm. Um, just you uh, elect different parties who have different ways of going ab about that. Mm. Um, you know, uh, for the for the for the safety and security of the world, is it best that we retain a nuclear deterrent, or should we unilaterally give up our nuclear deterrent as a way of encouraging other people to get rid of nuclear weapons because we're not being hypocritical, and that will lead to nuclear disarmament and therefore peace and security? Um, well, 
both sides of that debate want peace and security. <laughs> they just differ radically as the best way to get there. Mm. Um, but yeah, they're, they're saying there's something we think is valuable, uh, but we have a differing uh, discussion over what means we think are the best, most efficient, most workable, etc. ways of, of getting there. Um, so there is there is implicit value claims underlying the, the discussion under the disagreement. Grant, well, I, you know, in a sense, I hope I've, I've opened up a whole can of worms <laughs> for you. I, by any means, of the, the last word, there are different angles one could take on this. Um, but, uh, yeah, next time you, you know, are watching a film or listening to a bit of music or whatever, I think in terms of what's the spirituality that's coming through here, what's this expressing, what's this saying about the society I'm living in and its, its desires, its anxieties, um, how is that reflecting both a non-Christian worldview and perhaps reflecting despite itself something of of a Christian worldview about you know which which of those worldviews actually makes the best interpretive sense of what's going on here in in society that's sort of one angle the sort of apologetic angle of, of this um, but I hope it also helps in terms of sort of understanding where different people are coming from where different disagreements come from these underlying um, worldview and spirituality kind of differences and so on yeah Thanks, guys. Thank you, Thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate it being so engaging, mm. and um, it's actually surprisingly rare to have the opportunity to think through how it looks like, and it's different mm. elements of culture and art and music and so on. I think that's been really fascinating. Um, I really appreciate it. Yeah, maybe someone could volunteer to uh, pray and then.